Bay Hills, help me welcome our president, Kevin Compeling. Give him a big warm welcome. The country around the what do you see is changing in the church that we we need to do as a congregation or that churches need to catch up? What's changing to make a better impact in community? Sure. Well, I think one of the keys that I see is I'm seeing churches beginning to look at the communities around them. Uh, what I would say through the eyes of missionaries to, to look and say, well, who's out there? Uh, and we so so where are those people that are unreached? They, they've never heard about Jesus. Where are those that they're unengaged? They maybe were a part of a church. They're no longer there. Uh, where, where are the unnoticed people in our communities? And, and who then could we together in our community partner with to reach them? And so there's this, this sense organic. of intentionality. It's more organic, but it's also just saying, let's not assume everyone in our community looks at life the way we do and try to understand people. It's that winsome life-on-life kind of relationship. And it's recognizing that, that people will come to know Jesus as they see him in us. Before you became president of yeah. our denomination, you were a pastor in the Bay Area, kind of right. a little different part in San Jose. Right. But the Bay Area is one of the hardest church places in the country to do right. church. What's, what one suggestion or what one encouragement would you give to our congregation as we do the best that we can to live yeah. for Christ? Yeah, I think the best thing I can say to you is love the people within your congregation and love the people in your community like Jesus loves them. I mean, there is this sense, I think people are longing to be known and to be loved. And, and when we love them like Jesus would love them, and, and as Jesus, I mean, was described as being full of grace and full of truth, it's that sense of we love them and introducing them to Jesus and introduce them to what he says in his scriptures. I think there's that sense of people know that we care and we care like Jesus. Uh, even, I mean, I've seen in churches literally all over the world here in the Bay Area. That's what I see that's making a difference in people's lives. Okay. Well, we're going to let you open up the word. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I do expect you, we expect you to tell the churches you now visit that this is one of your favorite churches uh, a- in the country. Absolutely. I mean, have you checked absolutely. out? Absolutely. Yeah, look at how good looking There's, we are. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, good Pastries. looking and smart yeah. and all kinds of things. Yeah, well, I, that's mean, I can service. see that. These people really love Jesus. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for Kevin, and uh, thank you for his leadership in our denomination. And uh, the, all the, the skill set he needs to bring to, to coordinating, organizing, motivating, challenging 1,700 churches, pastors, organizations around this country. Uh, help him fill him with your wisdom and your spirit as he, as he serves you in this capacity. Now, I, just, I pray for the next 30, 40 minutes as, as not our president, but as, um, as a brother in Christ, as he opens God's word and he speaks from the authority that God's word has that uh, through him you would challenge us, motivate us, and encourage us to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Well, Becky and I are thrilled to be here with you. As, as Pastor David said, San Jose has been home for us for uh, 24 years or a little more than that, and we consider the Bay Area to be home. I uh, had a chance to, an opportunity to serve as a pastor down in San Jose for 12 years and then led our work in, for our mission called Reach Global on the continent of Africa, traveled Africa for 10 years before three years ago moving into this role. Thank you for your connection and a sense your partnership as being a part of this thing we call the Evangelical Free Church. Well, as I think about your lives and I look at my life, I know you're maybe kind of like me in this regard, and that is that there are some days that just don't turn out the way you'd planned. Do you have some of those days? You get up in the morning, you go, this is my plan for the day, and about halfway through, you realize that is not going to work. I, it, it happened to me actually... About a year ago, I was in Albany 
meeting with church planning leaders from the EFCA. And, and we were meeting, strategizing, praying, planning, thinking, how could we see churches like this one multiplied in communities all across America? And I mean, it was, a, it was one of those wonderful days. I got in my car to head back to San Jose, and I got on 880 at 5 o'clock. Oh, you laugh. You know what I was dealing with, right? So I'm on 880 at 5 in what would have been an hour drive had it been 630 in the morning on a Sunday. Ended up being uh, two and a half going on three hour drive on that particular day. And, and I got closer to home and I realized I was close enough in, in sort of Milpitas and kind of far north San Jose. I thought, I know I can get off the freeway and I know a shortcut to be able to get home. So I got off the freeway, and I'm starting on the shortcut only to realize I missed a turn. So I, I, I went, okay, I'll do a U-turn. I did a U-turn. I'm coming back. I look ahead. I see the stoplight where I need to make a left-hand turn to be able to get back on the, on the right path. I'm looking at that stoplight, driving along, and all of a sudden, I just see this flash of green, and it comes right in front of me, and someone ran a stop sign. And ran right in front of me. I, I could hardly get the hand, my foot on the brake, turn the wheel just a little bit. All I hear is crunching metal, an airbag deploys in my face. And before everything stopped, my car was against the curb, almost on the sidewalk on the other side of the intersection. Well, I'm sitting in the car and I'm thinking, number one, do I have all my appendages? I mean, is everything still here? I couldn't see because my glasses were on the floor. They got knocked off from the airbag. I had a big burn on my thumb from the hot gases in the airbag. My chest felt like I'd been kicked by a horse. And, and I realized I better get out of this car. So, so I tried to get the door open. It was literally jammed shut. I had to kick the door open to get it open. I got out of the car. I first thought, where's the other car? I hope the guy's okay. So I got up, stood up, and I looked. He was fine. He's walking on the outside of his car. He seemed to be okay. I turned. I looked at my car that prior to that was pristine, and it's just crushed. And I thought to myself, I didn't really need this today. You had those times? I did not need this to happen to me today. Some days just don't turn out like you'd planned. We find that in John chapter 13 in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Take your Bibles, would you, and turn with me to John 13. It's on page 1079 in the Bible. It's in the, in the seat right in front of you. If you want to grab that Bible out, it should be on page 1079 in John chapter 13. Now let me give you a little bit of context to where we are. The story in John 13, Jesus and his disciples have been walking together toward an upper room. And in that upper room, the preparations had been made that they were going to celebrate the Passover together. It was the high point celebration in the lives of Jewish folks. And for these 12 followers of Jesus, this would have been the high point of their year as they were going to celebrate Passover with their master. Now, what you don't read in John 13 that you do read in some of the other gospel accounts in, in uh, Matthew, Mark, and, 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 and Luke, what we read in those other accounts is that on their way, to that upper room, the disciples were, well, they were participating in their favorite pastime, which is to argue among themselves which one of them was the greatest. So they were in this dispute with each other as to which one of them is the greatest. And they get to that upper room. They, they climb the stairway, an outside stairway to the upper room. They opened the door and walked into this room. And there they saw everything and the preparations were all made for this supper they were to celebrate together. But something, or should I say someone, was missing. 
the servant. There, there, was, there was a basin and a pitcher of water and a towel. But, but there was no servant to wash their feet. You see, they'd been walking on the dirty, dusty streets and roads of the Middle East. And it was just common that for something like that, there would be a servant, the lowliest of servants, but a servant who would wash their feet and refresh them so they'd be ready for this meal. Well, if you think that one of them was going to wash the feet of the other guys, no way, they'd just been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. I'm sure they would have washed Jesus' feet that fast, but not one another's. And so they reclined at the table. And in fact, let me give you a sense of what that looked like before we read the verses. Because you might think that this, you know, you have that famous Last Supper painting, this amazing painting where all 12 of them are sitting and they're all like facing, you know, the artists. They're all in this beautiful table sitting there in chairs. It's a beautiful painting, but that's not the way it looked. Because you see, they didn't sit at a table. They reclined at a table. The table was about 18 inches off the floor. They didn't sit on chairs. In fact, the table was a U-shaped table. And they reclined on mats. There were straw mats on the floor. And they would, they would be laying on their left side, propped up on their left elbow, with the table right here so they could reach with their right hand and get the food. So when it says they were reclining at the table, that's what they were doing. So there they are. They're all reclining around this U-shaped table, their heads to the table, their feet sticking out on the other end. And then we read in John chapter 13, these words, starting in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let's stop there for a minute and unpack a little bit of what this is saying to us. John gives us the context here of understanding Jesus knew full well what his mission was and what the Father was up to in his life. He loved his disciples fully and to the end. And as a part of showing that love, as a part of understanding God's plan, he got up from that meal and he did something unthinkable for a well-respected rabbi and teacher. He stripped down. He took off his outer garment down to his undergarments. He stripped down to be like a servant. And he walked over to the corner. He took the, ba- the basin and he poured water in it from the pitcher. He wrapped the towel around his waist and he went from one disciple to the next, washing their feet. He got to Peter. And if you look in the text, Peter says, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And then Peter says, all right, Lord, then not my feet only. Wash my head and my hands. Give me a whole bath. And can't you imagine the smile Jesus must have had? I wish I had a still photograph of his face at that point. Like Peter, come on. But they were in shock, my friends. No rabbi would have done what Jesus did. In their minds, he didn't humble himself. He he humiliated himself in front of them. Uh, they're trying to figure out what was going on. And, and, and he then says, well, 
What I, your master and teacher, have done to you, you do for one another. Now they're really confused. But then look with me down at verse 21 of chapter 13. It even gets worse for them. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples are staring at one another. They're they're asking, is it me? Am I the one? Am I the one that's going to betray you, Lord? And and they're in that table. Remember, as they were in that U-shaped table, Jesus would have been right at the base of the U. On this side of Jesus would have been the Apostle John, who's writing this book. On the other side of Jesus was Judas, the one who was going to betray him. And so from around on one of the other ends of the table, Peter gets John's attention. And he says, ask him who it is. So John leans back, puts his head right on Jesus' chest and whispers to him, Lord, who is it? No one else on the table heard the conversation. Jesus whispered back, it's the one who I reach with a morsel, dip it in the bowl and give it to him. He's the one. And the next thing Jesus does is he takes the morsel, he dips it in the bowl, and he gives it to Judas in the place of highest honor as a gift to him. And then he looks at Judas and he says, so what you're going to do, do quickly. Judas gets up from the meal, walks out, gets to the door, opens the door, goes out the door, and the scripture text tells us, and it was night. Almost like he's going into the darkness of disobedience. Jesus knew he was going to betray him. What gets even worse? Come back to the text with me. These these men are frustrated and, and concerned. Continue on in chapter 13, because you get to verse 31. And when he was gone, that's when Judas was gone, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Jesus says, oh, by the way, I'm leaving and you can't come along with me. Now, you need to understand, for three years, these men had followed him everywhere. They'd heard him teach. They'd watched him do miracles. They'd even seen him raise people from the dead. They'd given up everything. They'd given up family and career and future, and and they laid it all in the line to follow Jesus. And now he says, oh, by the way, I'm going away, and you can't come with me. They'd been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Jesus humiliates himself in their eyes and washes their feet like a slave. One of you will betray me, he says. Judas leaves the room. I'm going away and you can't come along with me. And then Peter says, Lord, I will die for you. And the end of chapter 13, Jesus says, oh, really, Peter, you'll die for me. I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows in the morning, you'll deny me three times. These men 
reclining around this table, the 11 of them left with Jesus, their worlds had all come crashing in on them. They didn't understand what was going on. Their worlds were rocked and crushed. Because some days just don't turn out like we'd planned. But I want you to look with me at John 14. You see, as a young boy in my home church back in the Midwest, I was a part of a children's ministry. And we memorized Bible verses. This was like, and I was, I was really good at memorizing Bible verses. And I could get prizes when I did. So I memorized all kinds of them. And, and I remember memorizing John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. That's the old King James version of those scriptures. Jesus said. You know what I never understood, friends? I never understood how troubled the hearts of those men in that room were. Everything they had laid their lives on the line for to follow Jesus had suddenly come apart in front of their eyes. And Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. I have to tell you, we live in a world filled with people with troubled hearts. Oh, some of them live in beautiful homes and drive nice cars. Some of them struggle with poverty and brokenness. Some have broken relationships. They're all around us. And some of you in the room today, you you may look at me and go, Kevin, that's me. Filled with a troubled heart. Did you know that in America between 2014 and 2018, calls to suicide crisis hotlines have more than doubled? 45,000 people in America last year took their own lives. It's raising more quickly among middle-aged, middle-to-upper-middle-class people. And strangely enough, the highest professional group in America who are struggling with these issues and even taking their own lives are farmers. Interesting, isn't it? We live in a world filled with people with troubled hearts. But what we find in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6, is that Jesus is God's answer for those troubled hearts. Verse 14, it's chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I love Thomas. Thomas is a twin, at least that's what the scriptures tell us. I love twins. We have twin sons that are in their early 30s. We have twin nephews. We have twin grandsons that are six years old. They and their two-year-old sister and their mom and dad are living with us for four months while their home is being renovated. Oh my, do they have energy and Becky and I have none. You just need to understand that. We have none. I love twins. But here's Thomas's question. Lord, we have no clue where you're going. How do, can we know the way? Can I put it in today's terms? We don't know the destination. Even GPS won't help us. I can't put, no, if I put nothing in Google Maps, it gets me nowhere. How do we know the way? 
And do you know what I find in this passage? It really encourages me. Is Jesus is talking first about a plan. He, he says, I have a plan. I'm going to my Father. And I'm preparing a place for you there. That's my plan. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming back and I'll take you to be with me. That's my plan. And he has a place. It's a place for you and for me if we follow him. He says, I have a plan for you. I have a place for you. And in chapter 14, verse 6, and he says, I am the answer to your troubled heart. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What I love about that, Jesus doesn't say, hey, I know somebody who knows the way. And, and I could find somebody who could teach you the truth. And, and, and I bet I could help introduce you to someone that maybe could give you life. He says, no, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's God's answer for troubled hearts. 1999, it was the beginning of the darkest 12 to 15 months of Becky in my life. You see, on a Friday in June of 1999, it was my day off. I was still pastor down in San Jose. Fridays were my day off. I was at home with my family. We were starting to think about the fact that this was the first day of summer vacation for our kids, and I was going to preach at the church on Sunday, and Monday morning, we were headed to Disneyland. We are going to do like a Disneyland vacation for several days. Our kids had been looking forward to it, except that our son Brad, who was our older of our twin boys, uh, had been complaining about his left knee. He's a baseball player. He's playing Little League majors, and... Uh, He's an all-star kid, played every position on the team, but he's constantly, over the last several weeks, complaining about his left knee. So finally, after the game Saturday, the week before, I pulled up, his, asked him, pull up his pant leg a little bit. I looked at his knee, and there was kind of a lump under his, under his left knee, and so Becky took him into the doctor. And at 11 a.m. on Friday morning, I was standing in our bedroom when our phone rang. I picked up the old landline phone in our bedroom and said hello. On the other end was our family doctor. Her first words to me were, Kevin, are you sitting down? Now, I need to tell you, if your doctor says, are you sitting down, it's not a good thing. I said, I'm not, but I can be in a minute. I sat on the edge of our bed and she said that, that lump under Brad's knee it's osteosarcoma, Kevin. It's, it's a very rare form of bone cancer. You have to bring him into the clinic right now. We have to get him on crutches. If he walks on that leg, he could break the bone and spread cancer cells throughout his entire body. And I'm thinking, he can't walk on it. The kid's been playing baseball. He's a catcher. They're sliding into him. He's doing all this stuff, and now he can't walk. Hardest thing I ever did in my life was for Becky and me to sit our 12-year-old son down and tell him he had cancer. His eyes were this big. He looked at us and he said, he looked at me and he said, Dad, am I going to die? I said, Brad, I don't know. What we're going to do is we're going to get you the best medical care we can and we're going to get people praying like they've never prayed for you. It moved us into 12 to 15 months, 22 rounds of chemotherapy, 
26 hospitalizations in 52 weeks. And they amputated his left leg at the knee. We only knew of five other children at the Children's Hospital at Stanford University that were being treated for this very rare form of bone cancer. Three of the five had reoccurrences and died within months after their chemotherapy ended. That first Friday when I got the word, I made the mistake of going online and reading about osteosarcoma. And after about 20 minutes, I shut the computer off. I I couldn't read anymore. I'll never forget one evening, about halfway through this journey, I was on my knees in front of our twin boys' bedroom door. All four of our kids were asleep. I was just on my knees in front of his door crying out to God for my boy. And God did for me in that moment what he did for Becky in a, in a separate moment and separate way, but similar things. It's like he grabbed me by the heart and he said, Kevin, do you trust me with your boy? And, and I remember that moment that all the things I'd learned in seminary and all the long theological words I knew and all this stuff, what mattered is that I needed to embrace Jesus. And so there with tears streaming down my cheeks, I I said, Lord, whether Brad lives or dies, you're still good, you're still God, and I still trust you. And I will serve you my entire life because you're the only one I have to cling to in the midst of what my life was coming unglued. And it's like the peace of Christ just flooded over my heart. It's the hardest thing we've ever been through. But I want to tell you that Jesus is God's answer for troubled hearts. And it's clinging to Him. It's trusting Him. It's giving your life to Him. He's the answer. But friends, he doesn't leave us alone in the midst of those storms and troubles. Look with me at chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commands and I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, but I'll come to you. Jesus doesn't leave us alone. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' gift to us. A gift to help empower us so we could actually live lives filled with hope. And this Holy Spirit that He sent is not just among us and around us. For those of us that know and trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, that Spirit of God actually lives in us to empower us and to help us and to fill us with His peace and His sense of His presence so that we can actually live lives of hope in some of the darkest times. About six years ago, I was, I was driving. I should say I was riding because I didn't drive in Africa. I was riding between Accra, Ghana and Western Africa toward the Togo border to preach at a church plant on Palm Sunday. 
this little church plant in the part of on the Ghana-Togo border, which is the bullseye of where voodoo started. I mean, this is one of the spiritually darkest places in the world. And, and it was going to preach at a church plant filled with people that had come out of the darkness of voodoo into the light of the life of Jesus Christ. And I couldn't wait to get there to be with these believers. And I'm riding in this car and my phone rang early on that Sunday morning and I answered the phone and it was my friend, Dr. Nupanga, who's the president of a French-speaking seminary in Central Africa. I said, Nupanga, how are you? He said, Kevin, you have to pray for us right now. I said, why right now? And then I, hear, then I heard it. Machine gun fire in the background. I could hear mortars going over his head. Grenades going off in the streets. He said, Kevin, we're in the middle of a military coup. People are flooding onto the seminary compound trying to find someplace safe. I don't know what we're going to do. I I said, Nupanga, how is it with you? I mean, how is your heart in the midst of this? And this man, who is an Old Testament scholar who writes commentaries and books, said this to me. He said, Kevin, I feel like the king in the book of Chronicles who said, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And the phone went dead. And you know what I'm thinking? My friend just got blown up. I mean, somebody lobbed a hand grenade right there and he's gone. And I called him back and I called him back and I tried the whole day trying to call him back. I got no answer. Uh, Finally, I thought I've got to try again the next day. I've been praying for him and praying for the people. And the next morning I tried calling him. It rang twice. And he picked up the phone. He said, hello, this is Nupanga. I said, Nupanga, how are you? What's going on? He said, Kevin, I am so sorry. He said, right in the middle of our conversation, my cell phone battery went dead. And there was nowhere to plug in. I couldn't plug in anywhere. I said, Nupanga, you're killing me, man. But I've really prayed for you. That's right. I said, what's happening? He said, you wouldn't believe it. He said, in the midst of this entire thing coming apart in our city, people have fled onto the compound. Almost all of them have no knowledge of Jesus. And he said, I, along with the staff and students in our seminary, have been caring for these folks. We're providing water and basic food. And we're praying with them and we're sharing with them about Jesus. He said, it's like the Spirit of God prepared us for this moment. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' gift to empower us to live hope-filled lives. In the midst of crisis, these Christ followers were giving hope to people who had none. My son Brad, as Becky and I walked that journey with him, we saw God open doors for people to come to know Jesus and experience his hope like we'd never seen. Becky and I watched a congregation love on us and our children like we'd never seen anyone love on us. In fact, our, our other twin son, Brent, is a pastor today, and he would tell you one of the reasons is because he saw the church love in the midst of the darkest hours of our family. We watched people come to faith in Jesus in the midst of our trauma. And we watched people pray for us and care for us and walk a journey with us that changed our family. I watched our kids grow up spiritually. Becky and I watched them grow up right in front of our eyes. 
fact, I had the opportunity to lead a 13-year-old little girl to faith in Jesus as she was in the intensive care unit at Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford. Her mother had learned I was a pastor, and she's, she came and found me one Saturday afternoon. She said, my girl is going to die, and she doesn't know Jesus. You have to come and tell her about Jesus. And I had the privilege to lead her to Christ right in the ICU unit at the hospital. And for a woman from our church to disciple her over the course of the next month or so before she passed away. And, and I remember about two or three weeks after Angela's memorial service, this little girl's memorial service that I had the privilege to do in our church and saw people come to Christ even out of that. And I remember standing at the hospital with our son Brad as he was going in for another round of chemotherapy. And he, he, he's, he looked me, standing in the hallway, he looked me right in the eyes and he's on his crutches, you know, one leg and a frumpy hat and no hair. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, I've been thinking, um, do you think maybe one of the reasons God allowed me to get cancer is so that Angela could come to know him? You know, if we wouldn't have been at the hospital, nobody would have told her about Jesus. What do you say to your son? Other than God is good. For you see, the Holy Spirit is what God gave us to walk that journey. If I had time today, I'd unpack all of chapter 15 for you as well. It's a great chapter of the vine and the branches of how Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And and apart from me, you can do nothing. But what we find in that chapter is that lives that are transformed out of a genuine, intimate, life-changing walk of faith is what Jesus desires for us. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And he says in that passage, I'd encourage you this afternoon, go home and read John 15. Because he says, when you abide in me, when you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit, your life will be changed and you'll impact other people. That's what he longs for for us. I have to tell you the end of the story because sometimes I forget. You know, I told you about the twin boys and the little two-year-old and their mom and dad that are living with us. Um, that's our son Brad's family. He's very much alive today. Not only is he alive, but he deeply loves Jesus and is serving him in his church. He works for Cisco Systems. In fact, his pastor just asked him a couple weeks ago if he'd consider being on a speaking team in their church. I watched God change people's lives. An intimate, life-changing walk of faith. That's what he longs for us. And it happens as in in our lives we embrace Jesus and trust him and his gift of the Holy Spirit that he fills us with and empowers us so that our lives can change and people around us will see him. Christ in us, the hope of glory. You know, around us, there are a lot of people who are longing for something, some sense of meaning in life, grabbing onto everything from trying to make more money to try to medicate their pain in all kinds of ways. But what I want you to know this morning is that whether it's for you personally or whether it's for a friend, a coworker, 
someone in school, someone in your neighborhood, a family member. Friends, the very best gift we have to give a broken world is Jesus. There's nothing better to give them. He's the one when we embrace Him, when we hold Him, we say, I trust you. Even if the world is going upside down, I trust you have a plan for me and you have a place that you've prepared for me. And your presence is with me by your Holy Spirit. I trust you. That's life change that he wants to bring into your life and into the world around us. What I love, and Pastor David asked me a little bit earlier, so what am I seeing in churches across the country? What I'm seeing is people that are recognizing Jesus is the gift they have to give and they're sharing it. And they're reaching out and they're loving people with the love of Christ. And we're seeing people's lives change and people come to faith in Jesus. It's because there is hope for troubled hearts. And it's Jesus Christ who through faith will forgive you and will give you new life and a hope and he'll give you his spirit to live in you so that as you walk in that intimate walk of faith day by day trusting him ups and downs of life you'll change and your life will touch the lives of others that's what he longs for us I want to pray over you and ask that Jesus would show himself in profound ways to you. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, so often it looks, it just feels like life is going to run us over. Days don't turn out like we'd planned. The things we were hanging on to begin to fray at the seams and come apart. Whether it's health issues or relationship problems, jobs that are uncertain. But Lord, the very best thing we have is Jesus. And I would pray for people in this room, if there's anyone here who has not bent the knee and embraced Jesus as Savior, would today be the day where they would say, Lord Jesus, I trust you. You are the way, the truth, and the life. I trust you. And then, Lord, for those around us, those that we know who are struggling with things in their lives, I pray that you would give us opportunities to be able to point them to the gift of Jesus and introduce them to him, the one who can give hope. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us that much. And I ask this now in your gracious and glorious name. Amen. Amen.